You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 509, photos, drugs and rock and roll, the rehabilitation of Phil Collins and sax in the ditty, brass is back in the groove. That's all coming up after the Lotus Eaters and the first picture of you. Lotus eaters are people who, who eat narcotic fruits and flowers, mm. causing them to spend their days sleeping in peaceful apathy, which sounds like a terrific lifestyle to me. Um, but these Lotus Eaters had one hit in 1983, number 15 in the UK, a lovely evocation of summer, the Lotus Eaters and the first picture of you. 
That is uh, one of the more undersung singles of the 80s, I think. But I absolutely love that. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. One hit, one hit wonders uh, for them. But they're still going. They're still going around Mm. performing. So. uh, Well, that's that was probably is a bit like uh, um, Jesus Jones in that they only had one or two hits, but they were big enough that they can still probably dine out on them on a certain level of circuit, I would think. Well, hello. Thanks for joining us for episode 509 of the Parish Council. Mm. I'm Terence Stackham, and now there's been a lot of controversy about this during the week, so let's find out for sure. Is she on the green list, the amber list, or the red (laughs) list? It's Juliet Harris. Hello, everyone. I'm not going anywhere at any point, is my view. I haven't left the citadel of East Sussex for goodness knows how long, really. Even when I've travelled an hour on a train, I'm still in our our green and pleasant land of East Sussex. I I have no desire, Terence, to go anywhere else. What can I possibly want elsewhere that cannot be found in East Sussex? Seems perfectly reasonable to me Um, maybe a bit of a generalization but photography of rock stars it seemed to go through clear phases uh for me in the early days of pop say the beatles elvis and so on the musicians would be asked to stand in a line together smile at the camera and that really was was Mm. that i suppose film was expensive and little thought was given to the importance of photos in those days then in the late 60s and the early 70s prog rock and so on the same rules would apply but bands would be photographed looking moody and intense mm. probably on a small hill in some woodland somewhere absolutely yes and uh, music photography seems to come of age in the late 70s we can think of penny smith's famous photo mm. of paul simonon smashing his bass guitar and um, maybe all of that was due to the incredible success of the music papers of that time with each competing for the most dramatic front cover absolutely yes now jules um as a geriatric millennial um, (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna be on my gravestone isn't it cheers do you do you think music photography is something of a lost art i mean everyone has a camera on their phone so we're all anton corbyn now Yes, I suppose so. Although having said that, even though you have a camera on that phone, that wouldn't necessarily mean that Beyonce picks you to do her next photo shoot, I guess. So there is still, there is still, a, if Beyonce is having herself shot for the front cover of Rolling Stone, she's probably in a studio, isn't she? She's not on the bus. So, so I suspect that, that in terms of, uh, I, I think that maybe the paparazzi has died off mm. or, on the basis that we're all paparazzi now, aren't we? We, we're all, you know, we can all, uh, we can always, you know, take a picture of, you know that that golden day I queued up behind Griff Rhys Jones to buy cheese at a farmer's market in Suffolk in the mid 2000s obviously wasn't catch for posterity maybe it could be now I would have a camera on my phone but so so I think that the paparazzi era uh, their pictures perhaps have less hold on the basis that you know any as you say anyone can take a picture having said that the the infamous picture of Gaza out in a kebab shop at 5am um with Jenny uh, Jimmy Six Bellies or whatever he was, Five Bellies, that probably meant that he didn't get selected to go to France 98, was, and I remember seeing a documentary about this, captured by a, 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 a part, you know, sort of a do-it-yourself, a DIY paparazzo, a bloke that was happened to be out drinking in, in Soho, who ran to one of the those 24-hour Soho news agents and bought a Snappy Snaps disposable camera, which he then took the picture of Paul Gascoigne, nearly had it destroyed by Jimmy Five Bellies, but managed to escape 
escape and sold it to the nationals for goodness knows how much money. But uh, so so it, there has been DIY paparazzis in the past. But I think that that's that's the 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 uh, the, the section of of music and famous people with photography that perhaps is at more mm-hmm. risk. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you make a good point about music magazines and how the only major monthlies we have in this in this country now are by by and large are leaning towards the heritage end of the market and not always but mostly which means that usually those photographs have already long since been taken haven't they by the like you say the penny smiths and the anton corbins and the um the the jill Fomovskis of this world so so i mean it, 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 perhaps it is a slightly dying art in the sense that Maybe the year, and we've spoken about this before, the era of sort of big iconic bands is perhaps behind us, given how few bands seem to trouble the charts these days. I'm not sure. They're still, I mean, you know, there is still Rolling Stone in in the States. They still have the big cover photos. There are still, uh, interestingly, lots, particularly the female artists nowadays, seem to be moving towards the fashioned end of things, which means that they would, of course, appear in Vogue and Elle and things like that and uh, Vanity Fair. But... um, no, I, I think there is there's been a, an excellent um, series recently on BBC Two, which is called something like a life in ten pictures or a life in ten photographs, which is a sort of a talking head style documentary. But it it for it it talks about ten very famous photos of when I say very famous people, we are talking John Lennon, Muhammad Ali, Marilyn Monroe, you know, sort of a timeless star, that level of people. And that is very interesting because I think you can, it's done well. You can sew someone's life together in a series of pictures. Yes. You, you obviously talk about what's going on, but there is a lot there, I think. So, so I've always been a fan of band photography and it's funny. I was, I was talking to, to someone yesterday about a select magazine and how we both sort of in our Brit pop youth used to read this. And we were talking about blur and he said, do you remember that photograph in select when, and I finished his sentence by saying, yes, they took loads of bands dressed up as different things. And they took the, the picture of blur dressed up as um, parallel lines era blondie. <laughs> and with uh, Damon Albarn in a long blonde wig and a dress looking surprisingly quite good mm. and the other lad dressed in the you know that 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 iconic sort of shot and I know that was an album sleeve shot but but you know what I mean so so I think I think that there is still a place for it it's perhaps not as ubiquitous as it once was but um I do think there is just something about photograph. I mean, rock stars are almost, well, I think they're the same as film stars, aren't they? There are rock stars and film stars. They just have that veneer of cool. If you get them in the right photograph, I think it, I think it can still establish people as being legends. Perhaps, perhaps one of the issues for the modern photographer is that musicians and particularly their managers, publicists, are all far more aware than Brian yes. Epstein, Bernie yeah. Rhodes, yeah, Elvis they're much more astute aren't they They're yeah much more separate. these days everyone is well aware of the impact of a good photo mm. perhaps, but perhaps more importantly the damage mm. a bad or compromising photo could do to a career so so artists try I think to maintain rock solid rights and editorial yeah. pro- uh, approval over visuals and, and distance as well I mean you're yes. not going to get someone to take a dodgy yeah. photo of you if you don't give them access all areas yeah, that's that's true this is photography and video and I think a prime mm. example of that is Kate Bush banning cameras from those live shows in oh, 2014 yes. and the subsequent uh, cancellation of the video film the dvd mm. package because of her concerns of how she looked her weight and so on but oh, gosh yeah, I think the the point you were making about um, 
album sleeves. I think the change from 12-inch covers to tiny mm. CD jewel boxes probably didn't help the creativity of photographers either. I mean, there remain there's something wonderful and startling about those 12-inch album shots of, say, uh, Aladdin Sane, London Calling, of course, um, or Nevermind, perhaps. This, that really captured in 12-inch form doesn't really have the same mm. impact when either in a in a in a CD jewel case or even more so in a, a a tiny teeny square at the bottom of your Spotify feed. No, I completely agree. It's it's yeah, it's 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 a different it's a different issue, isn't it? Although speaking of sort of album covers and sort of themes of sleeves, I saw a Twitter account that was doing a poll the other week, and it really made me laugh. When you know what the obvious answer is going to be, so you have to try and phrase your question in a way it avoids it. They go, "Can you please tell us your favourite album covers featuring water, um, that, or themed around water that doesn't have a baby in a swimming yeah. pool on it?" And it's like, yes, you've you've spotted. Like the time that uh, that Mark and Lord on their afternoon Radio One show used to do phone-ins, where they give you a news story and you had to suggest a song to, to that would theme with the story, and they would pick one at the end, and they'd read lots of suggestions out. And they had a uh, they had a, a, a story one day that involved a bloke being knocked over by a cannonball, and of course <laughs> they made sure to read out every single person that suggested cannonball by the Breeders, like every single person. And then when it came to the big reveal, played thirty seconds of Cannonball before. Yeah then playing cannonball but yes i do i i yes i that i don't go off on a bit of a tangent there but yes how to phrase your questions so that you do and don't get the answer you want but no i agree i think particularly album cover photography they do have less impact now well, having said that who knows with with the the vinyl comeback continuing with some level of pace i think maybe we'll move back towards that i don't know that that would be great. That would be mm. uh, that would um would be, be a worthy reason on its own if it brought back yes, uh, absolutely. those wonderful creative. I, I knew I'd I knew I'd talk yeah. you around in the in the end, Terence. I knew it would take about six years, but we'd get there eventually. <laughs> Coming next from the dismal low of su su studio uh, to redemption in twenty twenty one. The mm. Phil Collins effect is next. That's right after Beyonce. Yes. Still don't say just how you look and do it. 
Loco, Young B and the ROC. Uh-oh, OG, big homie, the one and only. Slick bony, but the pockets are fat like Tony. Soprano, the rock handle like Ben X2. I shake bonies, man, you can't get next to. The genuine article, I do not sing, though. I sling, though. If anything, I bling, yo. Star like Ringo, war like a green wreck. Crazy, bring your whole set. Crazy in the range, crazy in the range. They can't figure them out, they like, hey, is he insane? Yes, sir, I'm cut from a different cloth. My texture is the best firm chinchilla. I've been dealing the chain smokers. How do you think I got the name over? I've been real, the game's over. Fall back young, ever since I made the change over to platinum, the game's been a rap one. bit of a brass theme this week we will be discussing this towards the end of the show but in the meantime when asked to pick my, my what my best songs featuring brass were I, I thought i'd go with that which is uh it, it's it's i think one of the most ingenious uses of a sample ever um that's of course beyonce or um interestingly i learned this week i think she's only ever released one single as beyonce knowles which was work it out from the austin powers soundtrack i think that is right that is beyonce knowles where i think it might have been her first time away from destiny's child and she still had to be introduced as to who she was needless to say she's not needed a surname what she's the the pele of pop isn't she she's not needed one for uh for, for many years now yeah. but um that's an excellent sample it's the chai lights are you my woman tell me shut so and it's uh and then you went sean connery then and um and it's uh it's a uh, the the best thing about it is when i've played it on my saturday social shows before as spot the sample it, it doesn't actually begin the record so you have a little bit of waiting for it and then the brass blares in and, and everyone goes oh that's where that's from that is a. Uh, I just uh, I remember the NME single at the uh, review at the time of that, and it said something along the lines of, um, "It is so brilliant that even Jay Z, when he turns up near the end, cannot help but sound bewildered by what is going on around him because it is just so indestructible." And they put at that point single of the century. So, um, so I'm a big fan of that song. It, it's just irresistible, isn't it, Terence? It's it's such a complicated song, but in the mm. best possible way. Yes, there's so much going on. Uh, I love Beyonce. I see her as a latter day Barbara Streisand. Mm, yes, huge good, good comparison, I think. And of course, you're a well, I am as well. But you're a particularly big fan of Lemonade, aren't you? That she yes, I am. Yes, I watched that every remarkable. few months. Yeah. Absolutely. I've I've noticed over the years that Phil Collins has two distinctive vocal styles. There's <laughs> looking forward to this. 
brooding, heartbroken, and tearful, like Poor in the Phil. air tonight, yeah, or, absolutely. Gods, or shouty, angry, and frustrated, mm. like that's all, or or the dismal Abacab. Um, mm. This this sort of brooding moodiness seems to envelop him like a, a, a prog rock cloud of doom, because just about any photo of Phil Collins from 1980 onwards seems to involve him staring down the camera and looking like looking like he wants to thump whoever's behind. <laughs> I mean, the feeling might be mutual, in a sense. I mean, I, I mean, who knows? In real life, he <laughs> might be the king of lols and bands. He might, so he might be, he might be a lovely man. I will, he, he I will, I will, emph- I'll emphasize. Well, should we emphasize might? I feel might. we should, so but yes, possibly the very life and soul of the party. But as unlikely <laughs> as that may seem, last summer. Uh, a video of twins from uh, Gary, Indiana went viral. It was Tim and mm. Fred Williams in well, lovely, a, a, a really reaction lovely. video, yes, as they experience in the air tonight for the first <laughs> time. And that they almost jump out of their chairs when that yeah. uh, comes in several minutes into the song. And this renewed interest has led to a reappraisal of the value of Collins uh, and his career and led to academics calling it the Phil Collins effect, which I don't fully understand, so I need a brainy person (laughs) to explain it to me, Jules. Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't got one of those, so this is my turn to try and do it. I I will stand in for a brainy person here. Firstly, that video is such a joy. It ends with Fred (laughs) shouting, you killed it, Phil, which I think (laughs) is just so adorable. I was of the generation of people that was introduced to that song, particularly by the gorilla praying drums to it in the Cabris advert that was an enormous success over here in the UK. I'm not sure if it had a worldwide reach. But anyway, the Phil Collins effect. Um, So these people at theconversation.com, and God bless them, have uh, have investigated his the trajectory of his solo career from 1981 to 2020. Um, and they call it, it's like a sort of a, an N-shaped curve that they call. So basically, it was admiration at first, um, which which makes you go up, uh, followed by derision. So at the admiration phase is 81 to 91. The derision phase is 1992 to 2009, followed by rediscovery in an ironic sense, an unironic sense of call, which is 2010 present i don't know when the gorilla played the drums but that might have been that might have been what what sparked a reappraisal possibly and they say um the phil collins effect describes how changes in the way fans critics and peers view an artist and interact with their work can affect the artist's critical and commercial status so they've got proper expressions to this the phil collins effect suggests i feel like i should be wearing i should have one of those laser pointers and be in front of a, a big white screen um how changes in the, so basically what they're saying is the phil Collins effect suggests popular artists go through a period of critical and commercial success and peer recognition, which is labelled consecration by the conversation by the way not me but they're calling it consecration um they have a period of commercial and critical decline and rejection by new groups of peers seeking seeking to define themselves apart from commercial success stories of the previous era such as phil collins which they level they they label sorry deconsecration and then the revival or reconsecration involved reappraising and rediscovery both by critics and often a new generation of fans and artistic peers and i think a 
perhaps an even better way of describing it is mm. it is a three generation story, isn't it? So there is a generation. So it's grandparents who might enjoy Phil Collins. Their kids don't like Phil Collins slash whoever because their parents liked it. And then their Let's kids, see, I suspect yeah. because I suspect because their parents don't like it, make a special effort to like it, I think, and also are perhaps indulged by their grandchildren. It's interesting. My friends that run a record shop say at Christmas time, they often get parents, but more often grandparents coming in and they always make sure they have the big tent albums that, we, that we've spoken about previously, you know, the dark sides of the moons, the rumours, the tapestries. And they said it's always grandparents that seem to want to pass that on. I suspect having given up on influencing their own children, mm. they then try and get a new generation. So I think that might be an even way to view it, really. And perhaps just that everything comes around in the end, doesn't it? So so it's always I always find it interesting what gets a second wind and what doesn't. Having said this, I remember saying to someone a while ago, wasn't it funny that lots of things came back from the 80s and early 90s? You know, I saw people where I saw people that were, you know, that that were not alive when I was old enough to vote wearing shell suits out and about (laughs) pre-pandemic and thinking, oh, man, and global hypercolor T-shirts and stuff like that, which is technically vintage now, I think. But um, you'd, you'd see certain things come back, Adidas popper trousers, for example, and, you know, kids like in Nirvana and stuff. But I'm remember saying to my friend god isn't it funny how lots of things like joy division are huge yet now but yet interestingly you don't see mullets do you they didn't prefer to come back <laughs> and within the last six months all of the kids under 25 who i'm friends with on social media have all got just sodding mullets and oh, I, I don't no. understand it just goes to show it's amazing what you know i thought that, that things were selective in the how often they came back but i think that everything comes back in the end it's just some stuff takes longer to come back than others but you know if you wore a i'm just trying to think of an example if you wore a mini skirt in the early 80s you would have been seen as being hopelessly behind the times and hopelessly out of fashion yet if you wore that same mini skirt with a sort of funky print on it in the late 90s that was all of a sudden really cool again as part of the Britpop revival so I wonder if it's just a case of everything turn, 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 rather than necessarily having to come up with a scientific N, N-shaped curve <laughs> in order to cover it. I'm not sure, but I think there's there's something in it. Maybe there's less in it than these people would like to think. But um, yeah, I certainly think that the world turning, I, I think the grandparent grandchild theory is probably a good way of thinking about it. I don't like Phil Collins. I find him an irritating <laughs> sort of fellow. Well, he might be lovely. He might, mm, might be lovely. Yeah, we just yeah. said that earlier on. But anyway, carry so on. Might. You know, there's something a little bit disturbing about In the Air tonight. And I don't mean the Cadbury commercial with the gorilla, as you mentioned. Mm. And Phil Collins wrote it as a sort of sad postscript to his first marriage with yes. Andrea Bertarelli, which places... I mean, a trouble seems to follow him around divorce-wise, <laughs> which, is, you know, starts, you, starts to make you wonder what the common theme is. But anyway, carry on. In the, in the Air tonight, it seems to... It places the song with Phil Collins as the victim his great lovers left him and so on but Collins was having a string of uh, you know relationships outside Mm -hmm. the marriage and indeed here is a quote from Andrea Bertarelli from this week in the Telegraph Mm. and I quote he's made a lot of money singing about the breakup of our marriage and his heartbreak approximately 115 million dollars and he's never stopped to consider my feeling feelings or those of our children all these years on, he's still playing the victim 
and I think it's time he stopped. So um, the end of quote. So th- there we are. I mean, who am I to argue with Andrea Bertarelli? She makes a good point, I think. Well, I, th- I think so, yes. But then I think that's perhaps an, an altogether different thing on deserved success, unsuccessed deserved success. And we could probably talk on another topic on, you know, to what extent people use and abuse the people nearest and dearest to them in their lives in pursuit of their art and perhaps their money. So, uh, so yes, it, it, you know, of all the artists that are deserving to experience an n-shaped curve like you i wouldn't put phil collins at the top i would i would rather you know i'm waiting for the sandy denny revival personally (laughs) that's that's an n-shaped curve i would although having said that i would like to think that she's never had a bottom of bottom of her end curve but yeah there are other there are other figures that i would like to reappraise more i think coming right up as Homer would say, it's all about the saxophone. Saxophone, uh, saxophone. Brass and horns next after Amory. Bye. 
Now, speaking of things that are absolutely irresistible, that's a song. It was one of the first songs I bought on iTunes because I I had no idea where I would find that. I didn't necessarily want to buy an album. I just absolutely adored that from the minute I heard it. Um, it's uh, It's been used on various film soundtracks. It's in a very unusual time scale um it's a uh, it's one thing by uh, amory um i just again i could i play it 10 times on repeat if i listen to it once um it's it's influenced by go-go rhythms which is why the time signature is a bit strange or unusual shall we say and it features a prominent sample of the meters funk recording of old calcutta from 1970 now it was uh, written co-written and produced by rich harrison mm. um now the thing that strikes me about that tune and about amory generally is that it's often said why wasn't she as big as Beyonce she was doing a very similar thing and actually she was probably doing it first that single predated Crazy in Love by a year or two um, or at least the song did now it's alleged that Beyonce heard a song a couple of songs from Amory's first album which came out in 2002 and wanted to find a way of capturing that sound she felt that it suited her and so she gave Rich Harrison a call which is not not necessarily unfair of her to do they were both on the same record label Columbia and she gave Rich Harrison a call and said that she liked the idea of a song that was written round you know a prominent brass sample so he did Crazy in Love for her based on the uh, based on the Chilites as we said previously so interestingly Beyonce then went went sort of stratospheric and Amory's career has never really hit the same heights and there's quite a lot of bitterness I think amongst some fans as to whether or not there's rumours that Amory recorded what what the young people would call a distrack um, unfortunately as a sort of result of the fallout of that I'm not sure but I always feel that one thing easily in, in my parallel universe one thing is as big as crazy in love and deserves to be I think you see it's really I think it's a fascinating story to tell there because mm. if one watched the Amory video without knowing what you've just told us yes you would sit and think well you can tell she's a fan of Beyonce yes um, exactly but as you say the reality is if anything the other way around um Rich Harrison, I mean, almost unknown outside the music industry, mm. but what a list of successes as writer and producer, as well as Beyonce and Amory. I mean, Usher, yeah, uh, Mary J. Blige, Pushcat Dolls, Christina Aguilera. Um, he he really knows how to how to uh, both write and produce just massive hits. Mm. Um, I mean, what, it, it, interestingly, in the end, one thing was not released as a single until a couple of years after Crazy in Love. But I think the the story is more the fact that that if you had to go put your finger on it Amory had the sound first it was mm. Rich Harrison that gave her the sound first and Beyonce is and I, I don't have the anger at Beyonce that a lot of Amory fans do I just think she's a bit she's not dissimilar to Madonna in that she is very shrewd in the collaborators mm. she picks and she picks well and she certainly did that but like you say Rich Harrison one of those people I mean at least pe- people outside of pop music probably know who Max Martin is by now and mm. all of his successes yeah Rich Harrison is one of those people who is the most successful person you've never heard of <laughs> like you say I mean most people I mean the fact that his associated acts 
Mary J. Blige, Beyonce, Amory, Jennifer Lopez, Usher. I mean, if you have one of those, you would be pretty, you'd be pretty big, wouldn't you, really? But no, he's he is, you know, really famous for for you know, not famous rather, and yet has mm. has achieved such success. I mean, when you when you sort of got particularly with with women as well, which I I very much admire. You know, if you dig in a bit deeper, you know, Tony Braxton, Christina Aguilera, Christina Milia, Missy Elliott, you know, anybody from that kind of those kind of genres that is any good has got uh, has got Rich Harrison behind them somewhere. So um so yeah, when you look at the the stuff that he's produced that hasn't been released, Gwen Stefani, Janet Jackson, you know, it's 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 ridiculous really. But yes, I always mm. always feel a bit sorry for Amy really because like you say, you'd think that she's ripping off Beyonce, whereas actually they were racing each other to get to that sound first, I think, to put mm. it diplomatically. There's a bit of a peculiar column in the British newspaper, The Independent, this week. Mm. It's written by the journalist Ed Power, and it mm. quotes a musician, Cat Deal, who says, quote, the 80s are back sonically, and the saxophone is part of that. Horns in general have had a resurgence mm. in the past five years. And it led me to wonder, I mean, did someone put a ban on saxophones in the 90s and 2000s? <laughs> because it is kind of true that when I think of great saxophone breaks or solos, I, mm. I, I did immediately think of Careless Whisper, mm. uh, Hall & Oates, Maneater, Baker yep. Street, Born to Run, yes. Smooth Operator, and probably a couple of dozen Motown singles. So maybe, yeah. Jules, maybe nobody loves the saxophone. Well, maybe people are learning to love it again. Maybe this is like... Sort of like curve. Well, exactly. This is it. Maybe maybe this is Phil Collins all over again. That it was very... it Well, not so much an end curve as a sort of a... Maybe a sort of a, a, a long V with a... Where, where one... Where sort of the left-hand side of the V is, you know, is longer than the than the right-hand side. And that, like you say, the, the brass of the of the Motown and... and mm. it, well, maybe you can trace it back to, you know, the very early Dixieland jazz and that kind of era. And it was... It was jazz sort of first made it kind of cool, I suppose, and outside of the mainstream. And then all of a sudden it became the mainstream. And like you say, the Motown sound and stacks and atlantic and all of those great soul labels in that era just made it you know it, it was it was pure pop it was pure pop power wasn't it if you had a, a saxophone and a horn section on your track it was it was either very poppy or very funky but it was definitely very successful either way i think and then it seemed to drift like you say that stuff was I say that Motown's always been cool it wasn't I think for a while in in sort of late 70s early 80s it stopped being cool and then the saxophone drifted to the sort of the coffee table era didn't it and it's interesting you say Sade for for ages the saxophone was very cool the I'm thinking particularly of Kenny G oh lord and yes. people like that all of a sudden it went from being very cool and that stuff sold you know truckloads yeah. didn't it Sade and, and Kenny G and then because of that all of a sudden, it was seen as very naff. I don't know. It was if sort it of dinner brunch. party music. Yes. People would put and, it on in the background. And exactly, and it, but it was fashion. It was very fashionable for dinner parties. Then all of a sudden, it just seemed to drop off the planet. It just stopped being very cool. And yet, in recent years, particularly in Britain, there's been a sort of an underground jazz resurgent again. There's some very interesting uh, sort of groups, and what my friend rather cruelly calls Mercury Music Prize jazz. But I, I very much enjoy it nonetheless. People like Sons of Kemet and the Portico Quartet. 
Um, interestingly, Nick Jonas's new album Spaceman apparently is is splashed in saxophone. Um, he was quote, and I love this quote from Nick Jonas. Nick Jonas is one of those kind of teen pop stars who I've nonetheless continued <laughs> to like, a bit like Harry Styles as he's grown older, mm. because I get the impression he's got a he's a little bit of sense of fun mm. and a little bit of self. It's well, a mix of self awareness yet being completely committed to what he's doing to just be doing something that he likes like harry styles is wonderful his wonderful stylish suits and you know his his way of just you know living that life uh nick nick jonas um is uh is quoted as saying this definitely has that steve winwood michael bolton kind of feel it's a good time and i love that i want to have a good time all the time with nick jonas and winwood and bolton um sam fender is a very big uh north shields uh blues rocker chap he's now brought that back for lashes she had lots of saxophone over her lost girls lp in 2019 even the 1975 a band whose appeal i don't understand at all yet they seem to be completely huge have is what as filed under it's what those kids seem to like um have have saxophone all over it's interesting black country new road is sort of one of the new sort of much hotly tipped acts amongst the six music music community it's very strange it was uh, uh, this article in the independent like you said it is quite strange in that it goes off on some admirable tangents and they seem to think that the latin boom played a role in bringing back brass now i thought they'd be going buena vista social club which is an argument that you know i think you could make no they've picked ricky martin's living la vida loca <laughs> as as the as the the latin revival which i mean that's so is it took me 20 years to like that song again because it was one of those songs where it was quite fun when you first heard it and then like bindweed it was just absolutely everywhere and it it became it became unmanageable but i feel that ricky martin is more manageable now but uh you know, hip hop seems to be embracing the saxophone as well kendrick lamar hip-hop's kendrick lamar to pimp a butterfly it resurrected Kamazi Washington's career to a new generation of people who then went on to have some more successful records. Um, I- I'll end with a quote from uh, Lewis Evans from Black Country New Road, who thinks that, and I think he's got a point there, he thinks that the streaming era is opening up genres such as jazz and salsa and the blues um, to people who might not know about it. He says, Spotify lets people down on a lot of things, but there are a couple of benefits. For example, people from anywhere could be listening to an old Ornette Coleman record. It is good for that. There is definitely a reason and you're seeing more bands with the saxophone and they talk about the brilliant James Chance who was a post-punk pioneer who I wish more people had heard of who was famous for um, making a band called James White and the Blacks and also the Contortions I might choose Contort Yourself to play us out one week simply because I don't think you'll want to come back after you've heard it but it's um, <laughs> it has some, but it's interesting that, that I think the point about Spotify and we've talked previously about you know mm the unexpected success of pavement b-sides because of the algorithms Mm. that that sort of happen and and the if you like that you might like this i i've done stuff on spotify before you start off listening to something that's just a little bit out there like maybe craft work or something which is not hugely out there but is Mm. a bit unusual and then it's a bit like 10 steps later I think I ended up listening to some brain melter from Fella Cootie or something because it just goes, oh, well, if you like that, you, you if you like, if you like, you know, German, uh, you know, German techno pop, then you might quite like prog, which means you quite like proggy jazz, which means you're like this completely off its nut thing by, by Fella Cootie.
beauty. So so maybe he's maybe Lewis is right. Maybe maybe you know the 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 the, the pick and mix grab bag era of streaming means that people come across stuff that they might not otherwise have done and then incorporate it into their own work and adventures. I don't know, but I, I, I'm, I'm personally a fan of the saxophone. So I'm, I'm glad that it is. Um, well, I'm glad it's back in a, in a kind of a non Kenny G type way. I'm glad that I'm glad that Kamazi Washington gets a new generation audience. I think that's fab. If we broaden it out a little bit to brass or horn sections, uh, yes. generally on, on records, there's little to beat the whoosh of that horn section coming in uh, to burst a few blood vessels on pop records. And I, I, I'm, mm. we, we mentioned Motown. There's yeah. so much soul music generally is boosted and enhanced by a powerful horn team. And also, uh, just thinking of a few, I was thinking about Paul McCartney's uh, tribute to marijuana, Got to Get You Into My Life. Yes, that's uh, immense, isn't as it? As soon as you think about it, you hear the stack sound of those trumpets and saxes. And then you've got Gino and There, There, My Dear yes. by Dexes, Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. But I think it's fair to say that soul and Motown seems to suit horns sections yes. best. That's um, the marriage made in heaven, I think. Absolutely. Almost everything by Earth, Wind and Fire, Temptations, mm. Papa Was a Rolling Stone, Staple Singers, I'll Take You There, Stevie, Sir Duke or Duke, yeah, uh, Eddie absolutely. Floyd, Knock on Wood. It's hard to imagine them without the, the, the horns. Well, absolutely, section. particularly in the in the case of things like um, Sir Duke by, by Stevie. In the, it's the introduction, isn't it? That is the thing, that's the first thing that you hear and the first thing that establishes is the tune i'd also say a uh, sweet soul music by arthur Connolly. Mm. it's nothing without its introduction and it comes it comes in at the end but it like you say it's such a calling card for those tracks when it's the brass that that leads you in i think it is great and i i would like to plug my own sort of uh, the brass of my era um, so I've always been a huge fan of For Tomorrow by Blur. I think it is a, a marvellous, marvellous record about sort of people hold, literally holding on for tomorrow, which becomes even better when you learn the circumstances in which it was written, which was it was written by Damon Albarn on a piano, drunk at his parents' house as a, someone in their early 20s, 4am um, on Christmas Eve slash Christmas Day morning, having been told by their record label, having presented them with Modern Life is Rubbish, without that or Chemical World in it, that it had no singles and that in the new year they will probably be dropped. And whilst Blur were holding on for tomorrow, he wrote that. It was a great song in its own right. In recent years, the reissues have included what is called the Primrose Hill version. Okay. which has an extended brass section and it takes it from great to outstanding in my view. I like you say there that I mean if brass you know but I hate the thought that people think that saxophone is Kenny G and Michael Bolton and things like that because actually when like you say a powerful horn section deployed well it can you know can lift records onto another plane I think. I suppose instruments do fade in and out of fashion. You don't mm. hear many stylophones or theremins no, these exactly. days. Exactly. With the guitar, Terence. <laughs> That's so true. And <laughs> those synth drums from the eighties. Oh, 80s oh uh, and any record with them on just is so dated, isn't it? Yes, it and really because is. they've never come back, they remain dated, don't they? If there is a I mean, there is some synth music, but I suppose synth music falls down by the fact that it, that it is technology based and will therefore presumably always be improving because people will always look to refine it and make it better. Whereas the saxophone has already been invented, hasn't it? That That is it. You're not going to, you, you know, you might, 
it's, it's like the guitar, you know, that's it. It's not like a synth where you go, oh, we're going to change this packet to make it sound much deeper and much more, you know, futuristic. Maybe that's why the 80s synth music ages very badly in some cases, because it's changed, hasn't it? Whereas saxophones will never change. Yes, I think that's that's the, the thing. I think um, anything is possible, you see, because mm. I remembered that 15 years ago, Sting released an album of loop music. Yes, so I remember that. That was very... Oh, anything is that, possible. It is, although wasn't that largely ridiculed at the time, if I remember <laughs> yeah, correctly. That, but that, anyway. that was the drawback, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, being with us this week. Lovely to very have you. Very much so. Yes, I echo the sentiments of my learned colleague. Now, talking about saxophones, uh, Pete Christlieb was the saxophone player mm-hmm. in the in-house studio band on The Tonight Show with Johnny mm-hmm. Carson. And in 1977, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan were watching television and saw him in that role mm. on The Johnny Carson Show and arranged for him to play on this track. And it's one of the greatest saxophone performances on a rock record this is from the album asia in 1977 it's steely dan and deacon blues Just what I'm 
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. What I wouldn't give to hear Lisa play another one of her jazzy tunes. Saxophone, saxophone. Oh.